Hi, I'm Gail from Europod. Before enjoying your podcast, allow me to say a few words about Europe Talks Back. In the third season of Europe Talks Back, I want to uncover the topics that matter or should matter to all of us. From gender to bodies and sex, digital to migration and urban landscapes, and everything in between. Rather than focusing on macro-level policies, let's zoom in and talk to the brave activists and volunteers with lived experience, who are working directly with marginalized communities to further equity, justice, and liberation for all. In Hungary, we are Catholics in a way that we generally have no idea what the Catholic Church, as an organization outside Hungary, actually wants. So we have this saying from the 18th century that there is no life outside Hungary, and if there is life, it is not like life in Hungary. So there is this extra-Hungaria non-est vita concept, and at the ecclesiastical level, this is a dome heavy lift that has fallen on our heads. What can be done to deal with the lift this dome represents? And how does the framework of the Catholic Church and the ideal of freedom fit together? Do they actually? When planning this podcast on freedom as seen from the perspective of Hungarian people, it was clear to our editorial team that we had to address the concept of freedom in Christianity. And that is why we invited Dr. Chaba Török. I decide what I buy in the shop, what I do during the day and what I do at night, who I live with, who I travel to, who I vote for, what I believe in, and what to think. But do we really decide everything freely? Humans have a strange relationship with freedom. Often we say that freedom is our most important fundamental value. Yet other times we tolerate being told what to do from above. So why is this dichotomy? Is there an objective level of freedom? And what would we do for it? Hi, my name is Alexander Damianorici, and this is Freedom in Hungary. In this podcast series, we tell the stories of six people from Hungary whose lives have been shaped by the concept of freedom. Dr. Chaba Török is a Catholic priest, a senior parish priest of the Estergom Cathedral, a theologian and a university professor. But behind the many titles, Chaba Török is first and foremost a progressive thinker of our days. Chaba Török is a man in whom respect for tradition and the need to transcend oneself are both present. In this episode, more than other times, we will touch on several concepts, but The main curiosity we had was, how can a free spirit like him live freely as a member of a seemingly rigid Catholic Church? 
and what does freedom mean from a biblical perspective. Chaba Turek graduated in Rome, where he also started his doctoral dissertation on the relationship between faith and cultures. His parents were non-religious and he had no Catholic upbringing, yet his interests were not restricted. Today we would say I was brought up as a liberal, so I decided to go to church when I was six. My parents said, fine, go, but we're not taking you, so you'll have to find someone to go with you. So probably beside my belief, there's also my family upbringing that says, you can live without freedom, just it's not worth it. In my life, this has meant that there was a specific moment when one word became crystal clear and everything else was silenced. For as long as I can remember, I have always had a one-way vision. Before I wanted to be a priest, I just wanted to teach history and nothing else. Figure this. I also had a problem with the fact that I could not choose a single major at university. Well, that's how Chaba Turek became a priest. Once, on the occasion of his recent visit to the Pope, a Catholic blog published an abridged version of a writing of Chaba Turek. In it, Chaba reflects on whether it is fortunate that the Hungarian Catholic Church criticizes the Pope and why the Church would need to become a player in any political discourse or similar bipartisan story. What are the consequences of holding such a, shall we say, strong opinion within the Church in Hungary today? Basically, there are some who are positively struck by that writing. I know that many people have talked about it in their monastic communities, and bishops have talked about it all together. But I know, of course, that there are those who had a critical detachment from my position. It is clear that I am an outsider on certain issues, meaning I have not been behind the scenes or initiated specific events. I don't think I hold definitive answers, but if we start talking and someone comes up to me and say that I said something stupid, and then that person gives me the line of thoughts, we can still do something about that, because the point is not whether I'm right or wrong, but simply that we love our community, we love our church. We have to dare to face reality. By the way, I think that's what the game is all about today, just reality. This is why the question of our relationship with the Pope has become so important to me over the last nine years. Practically, it becomes a bit like a litmus paper, meaning the more I berate the Pope, the better I am as a Catholic. Well, I say, for something like this, a 16th century reformer would have rubbed his hand in glee, implying that at last, this is a breakthrough on the Catholic front. So capitulation is near. And that's really the problem. As the most appealing point in Catholicism, for me, is the word Catholic, which is not universally one, but is a simplification. It comes from kata holos. The whole of Catholicism is one. Wherever I live on earth, whatever language I speak, I see things with a vision of the whole. And I want to place myself in the spaciousness of the whole. 
this is what it means to be Catholic. And that is what we are losing sight of. Simplifying quite a bit, today the Catholic Church is characterized by the rivalry between two great intellectual approaches. On the one hand, there is the progressive one, which believes in following the world, meaning not letting go of the faithful and trying to answer the questions of the world of today. Whereas the other line of thought, the conservative line, says rather that the church should be a reference point for the world and would rather draw the world closer to the teachings of the church itself. However, Chabaturek does not want to place himself along this spectrum. I believe that we have to answer more specific questions. When I talk about the basics of my faith in general, I will not focus on either axis because it is clear that my faith is rooted in scripture as well as in the holy tradition. Therefore, I cannot be but conservative. However, at the same time, since according to the beautiful words of the Second Vatican Council, Jesus Christ is, in some way, united to all men by his incarnation. I can't help but be progressive. And all of this regardless of age and geography. So all what I am saying will be very true at a general level of principle. I think this is the reason why the Catholic Church does not have eternal and indissoluble political allies. Because we're talking about two different dimensions, whose meeting points are specific issues, and with whom I am on a common platform on the specific issue. Now, excuse me, I do not want to give Hungarian examples, but an ecumenical example. Who is the Catholic Church closer to? To the evangelicals or the Reformed? Well, it depends on which issue. Eucharist, priesthood, predestination, sometimes with one, sometimes with the other. So that's probably the only way I can describe our relationship to political life. We have concrete issues and we have to give concrete answers to them in concrete situations. So what is Chapatarek's position on freedom? Which is of course too broad of a question, so let's rephrase it slightly. How important is freedom today as a value? Or how important should it be considered as a value? The greatest name for God in the Old Testament is Savior or Redeemer, because God brings his people out of Egypt. And it's a fixed word to describe God who has delivered us with an uplifted hand, with an outstretched arm. So in relation to God, man is also the basis of experience. If I may say so, his archetypal vision is the idea of deliverance. That's what the word savior means. The savior sets me free from my bandage. Saint Paul has beautiful thoughts on freedom. You have been given the spirit of freedom, have you not? so that we may no longer live in bandage, so we cry to God, Father. So what is the point of this vision? Well, God can only be called Father by a free man, but not by a servant. The servant must address him Lord or Master. If I call him Father, it means that I am free. If I am not free, I cannot call him Father. And this is where my own experience comes in, which was very strongly shaped by when I was teaching a theology class in high school, as in Budapest. 
I had strong ties to two high schools. I mean, this should be the goal of our whole Catholic education. How a young person today becomes a free man, who stands before God and the whole world completely and radically free, with the weight this implies, of course. But here, the question arises. Can freedom in the biblical sense and the freedoms that many people are fighting for today in many places, especially young people, be reconciled? Well, this is what Chabatorek told us. Let me turn to you a few simple questions. In terms of intellectual history, why then do we think that man has inalienable freedom and liberties? Europe did not think so before Christianity. I'm sorry, but whether I look at Greek drama or Roman thought, it's fate and destiny which rule the world. For a study, I did some reading on Greek drama. In Hakulus, there is this beautiful thought when fate says, even if you spend a lifetime running from me, at the gates of the tomb, I will catch up with you. So you will not escape, you have no freedom. It's only a pretense that you have freedom. Therefore, today thinking in Europe that man has inalienable rights of freedom by virtue of being human, as Christians, we must see this as a child of our own face. This idea, I cannot see this as an enemy of our counterpart. I'm sorry, but this is Christianity. When it enters European thinking, which give emphasis at identifiable principles. And so, for example, what is the basis of inalienable rights? The equality of human beings, well, in Rome and Greece, this idea did not exist. Any aspiration to freedom must be taken seriously. So who am I to say outright that something is cancelled or not or allowed? If there is a conflict, for example, about moral laws, for example, about the fundamental vision of mankind or other issues, well, then I have to take up the situation by entering into a dialogue. The primary condition of which is to be willing and able to understand the other. So if you are looking for freedom, you are not looking for something bad. It should be said, looking for freedom is looking for something good. At most, we disagree on what we mean by that. For example, the relationship between freedom and limitation. Nevertheless, one must say that, in relation to freedoms generally speaking, it is not so uncommon to experience the art of quick labeling in circles close to the church. Meaning, how often are freedoms described as sins? And on top, Occasionally, there's this very idea that sometimes it's better not to talk about a given request for freedom. Because if we talk about it, that freedom sneaks into our lives and takes it over. It's difficult to talk about this, but I think that we, as believers, also very often carry minor and major wounds, even in our identity. So I think that the Catholic community today in general has a huge burden. It has been scared by the great intellectual and historical dialect of the Enlightenment. In the context of the latter, it was constantly on the defensive, and usually it got slapped. The history of the 20th century, which overhelmed, demolished our church systems, perhaps including the 19th century, which we refused to let go of. 
And now, here we are, a bit on the edge, slapped a few times. We are also slapping ourselves internally. We are defending ourselves and we are fighting like in a bare room brawl. And here we are, stripped bare, struggling with a lot of inner insecurity and searching for something that gives us stability and self-identity and keeps us going and strengthen our self-confidence. And from there we close down and we attach ourselves to role, sets, costumes. And by the way, sorry, but those three words perfectly described what goes on in one of the other Catholic churches. Listening to Chabaturek, one must admit that representatives of the Catholic Church, or indeed of any church for that matter, rarely speak so openly about freedom. Likewise, it's rare to hear expressions of self-criticism. And at this point, in the discussion we came to one of the most sensitive issues. Whether it is a sin to be attracted to one's own sex. Whether one has the right to choose one's own sex, to marry and to have a family. I believe that at this point we come to one of the greatest crosses of the Catholic Church. For some reason, sexuality and sexuality-related themes have taken over our minds and invaded our hearts. Where is the list of cardinal sins? Do we find what? There is a beautiful book by Cardinal Jean Danilo, an eminent theologian that went back to the time of patristics. And from there it brings a very simple idea, namely, that the Church Fathers always felt that sins of the heart were always greater than sins of the flesh, because the body is a gravitational field. It has our human vulnerability, our need for love, and so on. But the problem is when there is hatred in the heart, or when there is envy, when there is anger and rage, and there is judgment of the other. So it's simply clear that what really gets me on this issue is what happened to us in the first place. That sexuality has enveloped our minds, our thinking, our hearts, to such a level that we have placed it above everything else, while we compromise and bargain on everything else. I mean literally on everything, from harming the community to private or public hatred. We balsam and tolerate everything. And when it comes to sexuality, instead, we seem to lose our minds, going to war with bloodshot eyes. And here too, I think that we do not take into account the fact that there are homosexual people among the clergy and among the faithful. Every word we say stings and wounds and hurts. At the same time, very often, it is coupled with a kind of abandonment. So I'm sorry, but in that respect, I think that, for example, when we take a stand in a lot of social debates, it would be good to add to our staunchest position the following reflection. What will I do to help someone who is struggling, who is facing difficulties? who cannot fit into the positive framework that I set as an ideal. Who will I reach under your arm? Who will I welcome him? How will I lift him up? How will I support him? So, for example, it is very easy to declare our ideal image of the family. But how do we back families 
who face real difficulties in real lives. By the way, this also came up regularly in the context of the family synod. It is easy to say that the people did not get married because of this or that, but let us not forget that financial and existential pains and struggles. And let us not think that we are basically the way we are because we are possessed by some evil spirit. As a teacher in high school, I can honestly say that I have never met a person who fundamentally questioned healthy ideas and ideals. Who wouldn't want to be happy, to live in a relationship with full value, in fidelity, in unity? Meanwhile, discussing freedom in the context of the Catholic Church, the question of celibacy must be raised. Some argue that this is the main cause, celibacy, of the shortage of priests today. And some people go as far as saying it might even be the only cause. I think the more important than the number of priests is questioning the mental status of priests and the clergy as a whole. In practical terms, we are not sharing secrets by saying that a significant proportion of the clergy experience difficult situations psychologically and emotionally. So it is clear that the much more important issue in connection with celibacy is not the number of priests, but their health their mental and emotional health. So that makes us question celibacy, sure. But I don't think that this will solve the problem. It's just an addition that will give a very different characteristic to priesthood. But we won't necessarily have more priests. Homosexuality is present throughout the history of priesthood. And if it's difficult to trace directly, it is precisely through the ways it is constantly dealt with that it becomes visible. In other words, it becomes visible through the rules that are invented in monasteries for priest confessions and in the solutions that are proposed. And so this question comes up again and again. But what I have in mind, by the way, is that I would tackle this question in a slightly more complex way. I think that the last 150 years have been hypocritical and hypocritically prudish time. Actually, it wasn't until the 19th century that sexuality was practically as much a naturally existing capacity as eating, drinking, metabolism, and so on. Today, we still have the married and the adulterers, and they are the priests and their relationships. These categories didn't really mean anything to anybody before. You can use songs or literature as examples. So this identity crisis or flight from identity is, I think, typical of the problems of the last hundred years. So we do not take up a historical perspective simply because we live in a very hypocritical world. And at this point, I would like to say that the question then becomes more global. Because at this point, I think that no matter how much we liberalize the social framework, more problems will come to the surface as if it was a vicious circle. So whether my social identification coincides with my gender identification or not, it's like we've opened a Pandora's box 
and now it's spinning, spinning, spinning and spinning. And from here on, it might play a very relevant role in the future. I personally think there are much more serious problems than that in Hungary, because, well, I'm sorry to say that, but even in our liberated sexuality, we can live in misery. One could argue whether vicious circle is a good choice of words here, and if we could and should not talk about liberation in a way. Meaning that self-identification and social identification can also mean coming to terms with everything that otherwise has been lurking under the surface and has been bitterer in our lives. Maybe one has to go down the road Chaba has defined as a Pandora's box. Or what is actually Chaba's definition of liberation? Liberation is when I'm at the end of the road on solid ground with both feet under me and standing and I am myself. In light of Chaba Turek's writings and the conversation we are having in this podcast, the question of how much a Catholic priest risks saying out loud what Chaba just had to say remains quite relevant. God is not looking for priests by the peace, and we don't have to fill the quota of a contingent. God, when he calls someone, calls them because of who they are. He created the man. He knows him better than anyone else. And he knows why this one man with this specific character is the one he needs as a priest in his plan. His personality, his emotion, his thoughts, and so on and so forth. So if I have to deny myself, then I am certainly not walking in the path of the vocation God has given me. Because God does not need a man, God needs me. And if I do not fit into the church, then it is a sign that there is a conflict here that cannot be resolved. So far, I am very grateful that it has always turned out that at most some people have raised their eyebrows, so I still fit in the church. There's no question that restricting freedom, at least beyond a certain limit, leads to unhappiness and even suffering. But it is equally fascinating to ask why the existence of freedom does not automatically lead to a happier humanity. In other words, why do we suffer so much even where everything is supposed to be freely at hand? The more things we have, the more we fear losing them and the more we suffer from their absence. So if 10 years ago I went camping by bathing in the river and sleeping on the ground, I don't do that anymore, because it feels so good to have a decent bathroom. It feels so good to have a decent bed. When I was a teenager, I had all these big goals and absolutely idealistic dreams. And when it all came down to what new elements in the furniture of my life would come, to have an even more cozy and smart home, smart life, smart existence, all in place, well, then your freedom, it loses its meaning after a while, I think. There is a story that goes back to Saint Philip Neri, who once had a young student. The latter told him that he would go to law school and become a lawyer, and this student had his whole life pictured in his head. And whatever he said, Saint Philip Neri asked, and then what? And the student pictured some new goals. And then what? Saint Philip would ask. Meaning, 
and then there's going to come a time when time has run out. For my 18th birthday, my mother bought me a diary. I filled it up with writings. I was a graphomaniac. And she wrote in the first page, in the last sentence, that she wished that when I came to the end of my life, I could say that it was worth living the way I did. That the way I lived was the only way to live. By the end of this conversation, I was thinking that maybe we don't necessarily need to change all the time and keep up with the world's trends. That we can also go back to the basics and unload ideas that the struggles of centuries have imposed on us. It also became clear from Chaba Turek's reflections that freedom and Christianity, or in this case the Catholic religion, are not necessarily two opposing concepts. According to his teaching, It is the classical Christian doctrine that provided for the basic human freedoms in Western civilization. Just over the centuries, the church's sometimes quite embarrassing manifestations, it's difficult to explain cooperation with various states and political systems have made so that we would forget it. This was the fourth episode of Freedom in Hungary, a podcast series where we ask people from Hungary to share their thoughts and visions about freedom in connection to their personal stories. This Europod podcast was produced in partnership with the Hungarian Budapest-based podcast production agency Beton Studio. Freedom in Hungary is a podcast part of the Sphere Network, the first network of independent media in Europe which aims to reinvent the media space and paint a new picture of Europe through impactful, unbiased, raw and authentic stories. This podcast is also available in its original language, in Hungarian. The editor-in-chief of Freedom in Hungary is Anita Nieser. The editors are Susanna Fasekas and Luca Lukacs. The original host and narrator is Andras Batis. The selection of soundtracks and the original post-production is by Adam Gongiosi. The creative producer is Balas Roman. The producer is Richard Hampok. Sound editing and mixing of the English version is by Jeremy Bouquet and Thomas Kusper from Bull Media Podcast Agency. The English voice of Chaba Turek is by Elliot Dickinson. My name is Alexander Damianovic. Do you want to hear more podcasts that get to the bottom of things that stand out in the ambient noise? Join Europod. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and our newsletter. Follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Discover our brand new website at www.europod.eu and join us in our fight. Europod. Clear the noise. Start to listen.